Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Russ Kostrick is with us now here in New York, BlackRock Global Allocation Team Portfolio Manager. How bad was it, Russ? It was bad enough. It was a little slushy getting out of the uh, the road this morning. But you made it here safely. Fishtails on the car. You made it here safely. That's I did. all that matters. And for anyone commuting this morning, I hope you make it safely to wherever you are going as well. John Tucker will keep you up to speed on the weather through the week because it's going to be a cold one, John. Did the uh, the little ones have off today? Huh? Tom? They're so off. Okay. Sledding in Central Park. Tom's not happy about this. He's walked into the studio in <laughs> no, a bit of a mood. No, they're not doing sledding in Central Park. They're doing glossier. That was that three hours. Hours. They're spending three hours doing makeup. Yeah, we have the Jean-Charles palette is what we do. That's we what's the, happening at the, the We household. had the mortgage vet bill, but we, we have the Those are great margins on those items. Okay. Yeah, margins, yeah. Let's get to the news, guys. Um, according to two people familiar with the discussions, the U.S. and China closing in on a trade deal. Um, Russ, every Monday, I feel like I read that headline. Is this market becoming increasingly desensitized to these headlines? Because futures up a handful of points, the Aussie dollar barely rallying, the Chinese currency virtually unchanged on the session. Your thoughts? You know, this may be the, you know, the most recent example of buy the rumor, sell the news. I think at this point, everyone has discounted a deal. The outlines are broadly known. Uh, So I don't think there's a lot of juice left simply on the fact that some type of trade deal is going to be signed this month. Are you waiting for the news or are you already selling the strength? We've been trimming. Uh, This has been an enormous rally. You're up about 20% off of the the Christmas Eve lows. You've seen volatility decline for nine or 10 weeks in a row. That has never happened before. It's not that things are not improving. The trade deal is important. Uh, Monetary policy in the U.S. has pivoted. But again, everybody knows this. And you've seen a very big rally predicated on those developments. Well, walk me through where you're you're trimming at the moment and how your regional bias is shifting a little bit here. So we've been trimming a little bit uh, in some of our more cyclical names. Uh, Despite the rally in the markets, the fact is there's still a lot of evidence that the global economy is decelerating. Now, to be clear, we're not expecting an imminent recession, but we are concerned about companies where their revenue, their business model is dependent upon the economy, uh, a growing economy, and you're just not going to get as much of a tailwind from the global economy as you had in 2017 and 2018. So what does that mean for the FX market? Push that through the FX market because so many people are struggling to make a directional call on the US dollar, largely because we've had a range-bound FX market for the last several months. Well, the, you know, the tough thing is you should theoretically be seeing a weaker dollar because the US economy is slowing. The Fed is arguably going to be taking a more dovish stance than you would have expected three months ago. But everywhere else is slowing as well, particularly Europe. So we're overweight the dollar. Uh, we're overweight the dollar, particularly against the euro, not because we're convinced you're going to see a hawkish Fed or a particularly strong U.S. economy, but because you're seeing an even faster deceleration right now in Europe. Can you buy blue chips here? I mean, over the weekend, people are recalibrating after, as you mentioned, up 20 percent in, in literally a cup of coffee. Can you actually acquire shares this morning, or do you just have to wait for the opportunity on pullback? I think you've got to wait a little bit. You know, part of the challenge is that a lot of the names you would typically go to 
when you expect a slower economy are the most expensive. In other words, the defensive names, the lower vol names that people crowded into in December, that's where you're seeing many of the premium valuations. That's another area we're cutting, not because we don't like the model, we don't like the price. Have we solved the situation with the stocks versus bonds story? Both of those asset classes rallying together over the last several months, and many people ask which one would break. Looks like it was the bond market last week. It did a little bit, but you know, to put it in perspective, you've got the 10 year 275. Uh, yeah. The yield is about 10, 20 bips above where it was in the lows in December. You know, yields just haven't moved as much as people thought. If you go back over two and a half years to where <clears throat> yields were in late 2016, they're kind of in the same spot. I think what you're seeing is a recognition the Fed is just going to end its tightening cycle at an earlier level. The terminal Fed funds rate is lower, and that's translating to the long end of the curve. Well, I'm using the word break quite loosely, admittedly, but last week was pretty interesting to me because last week we had a series of downside surprises on global yeah. eco-data. If you actually look at the city Global Economic yeah. Surprise Index, that rolled over last week, yet Treasury yields, bond yields started to grind higher. So the question I was left asking through the weekend is whether the slowdown story has largely exhausted itself in core government bond markets. No, I think that's a, it's a fair point. And to me, it's still, there's, it's not just the sort of pickup in yields, it's the divergence between stocks and bonds because they were telling you different things. Uh, and as you point out, the economic data is still confirming the bond market narrative from January and February that you're not well, going to get a reacceleration in growth. Then how do you respond to the idea that bonds always lead stocks? There's a, there's a among good equity strategists, there's a humbling reality that the bond market often indicates things earlier than equities. Do you buy that idea? I think there's some truth in it. And again, to the fact that you still haven't seen a very big pickup in yields, the fact that real yields are still well below where oh. they were at the peak last year, tells me the bond market is saying, look, we're just not going to get the synchronized global growth we thought we were yeah. going to get in early 2018. Do you see that 7.07.13 a.m. on a Monday and we're already talking the real yield? Fridays, 1 p.m. Thank you. Bloomberg TV. <laughs> I just, you know, Russ went right there. You bring is, it is there it early. Did? So you wrap it up with buy gold. It's a call coming from Russ. I did not know that. Jeff Curry buy, at Goldman Sachs is the same thing. Really, why, long why gold? Buy, why we, buy gold, We Russ? do have some gold in the portfolio. The question is, what are you protecting against? If you're protecting against an aggressive Fed, gold is not the place to be. Our view is the Fed is not going to get that more aggressive. Uh, you still have a world with uncompensated geopolitical risk. You have an environment where I think the dollar's probably in the trading range. Real yields, sorry, I mentioned it again, are probably not going much higher. That's a decent environment for gold. Russ Kostrich, thank you so much with BlackRock. Uh, he is, of course, chief uh, officer of the nominal yield at BlackRock <laughs> as well. We get hysterical with Liz Young. Uh, she is uh, doing senior investment strategy with BNY Mellon Investment Management and darkens the door this morning. Liz, the smartest thing I heard at 1231 was from the investment strategist John Farrow of Bloomberg Surveillance, who said recalibrate in March. We're here. How are you recalibrating after what we've lived through October to February 28th? It's, it's a good question, and it's a question that I think is on everybody's minds that we went through the end of Q4 and probably overdid the fear quite a bit. We started Q1, and I think we've overdone this rally a little bit. We would be happy with 
low to mid single digits by the end of the year, I'd be ecstatic with 8% by the end of the year, which means that right now we're a little ahead of ourselves and we wouldn't be surprised to see some consolidation in March. Reading through your notes, Liz, what's interesting to me is that you actually expect the economy to reaccelerate here in the United States out of Q1 into the back half. Walk me through the thinking there. So we do expect a little bit of a slowdown actually right now in Q1, but then as the year continues, you could see a pickup in growth. And what we really talk about is is having a number of different scenarios economically. And the central scenario is that the U.S. decouples from the rest of the world. And what that means is instead of it being a, a rip your face off growth rally, it's going to be more of we're the, the best house in a bad neighborhood, the cleanest dirty shirt, however you want to look at that. Yeah. And it's really the fact that there's pressure around the globe and not as much pressure here. So what's your baseline? We've come off a year where we've had in and around 3% GDP growth. What are you guys looking for? We're looking for, in the central scenario, in our base case scenario, 2%. If we surprise to the upside, which is looking like more and more of a possibility, 2.5%. Some people might say that might be enough to bring the Fed back in if we get some inflation bleeding higher as well in the back half of this year. What's your view on that, Liz? That's absolutely true. So in, in the central, in the base case, we still expect there to be one hike this year because at some point, summer or fall, the Fed will run out of reasons not to hike. If we surprise to the upside, and the big catalyst there is the U.S. consumer, if the consumer comes in and really props us up, they may have to hike twice. Okay, they may. I get all the macro stuff. What are corporations doing? I mean, what John and I saw for 14 days is a lot of restructurings, a lot of forced uh, things, a lot of unforced, maybe planned things. But what do you people see company to company in strategy over to tactics from companies? Can they adapt to this world going forward? I hope they can. and, and what's, We always what's underestimate been, that, don't we? We do. I think we do. Yeah. And I think we expect it to happen faster than it actually does. So I actually read something yesterday that some of the tax reform effects haven't completely happened yet. We haven't even experienced all the positivity from that. So maybe we see some CapEx improvement this year. The other thing that I think is helping corporations a lot is we've all been waiting for wage growth to come into play, and it hasn't really. So it hasn't put as much pressure on their bottom line can, as we expected. Can they cut costs as they've done for X number of years? I mean, do they just cut costs going forward? They can continue to try. At this point, it, it gets it gets to a point where we're kind of squeezing blood from stones, though. So what we need to see is that that top line, so the revenue growth stays steady, which also has been promising. So if you looked at what happened since October, earnings estimates came down, but revenue mm-hmm. estimates really didn't, which means that there hasn't been much of a demand problem. Have we seen peak margins now, Liz? Peak margin growth, perhaps, but, but not peak, peak margins. margins, not necessarily. Interesting. And likewise with profits, too. Would that be a view as well? Yes. So peak margins growth, pre-profit growth does not necessarily have to be peak markets? It does not. So the growth numbers, the biggest growth numbers probably happened in 2018. And what we're seeing in 2019 is a slowdown in growth, but we call this the second derivative effect. So it's just the rate of growth that's changed, but growth is still continuing. So if the market's going to continue bleeding higher, some people might sit here and say, well, Liz, I think this is all about the Fed. You think the Fed's going to come back in. If the Fed's going to come back in, I think this market's going to reverse. What do you say to them, Liz? The interesting part is that the market has been really propped up by the Fed since the end of December. But the issue is that the market seems to have forgotten about all the other risks that are out there. And it's pricing in a positive outcome on trade. It's pricing in a positive outcome on Brexit. It's pricing in a Fed that stays on pause and maybe even pricing in less of an earnings drawback than we've seen. How many people participated in the joy from December 26? Mark Connors was with us from Credit Suisse. 
And he was adamant how few people really enjoyed this lift. Do you agree with that? I would agree with that. I, I tell our clients all the time, it's really easy to go to cash during fear, but it's a lot harder to come back I mean, out this of is, cash. This is, John, this is a massive CFA axiom. This is wandering in level three where they just beat you to death. Getting to cash is easy. It's the other way. It's wildly asymmetric. So let me ask you this, Liz. How do you measure how much we've re-risked versus de-risking? So if we de-risk a lot through December, how do you know we haven't re-risked as much? What do you look for? I I mean, one of the things you can look for, you can obviously look at flows. You can see where investors have put their money. Have they put their money back into the equity market or have they put their money into bonds? And right now, that's a little bit unclear. The other thing that you can look at is how broad has the rally been? So have other sectors participated in this rally? And what we saw last year was tech led us all the way up and tech led us all the way down. This year, what we've seen is a little bit more of a broad-based rally where you have things yeah. like industrials, well, then What's your prediction for? Do we stay broad-based? Do the banks finally catch up? Russ Kostrich or BlackRock says no on the banks. But is it sector-specific or is it an all-boats-rising continuation? I think it's going to be a lot more narrow of a spread between value and growth this year, which ends up being what a little bit mean? more of a sector call. What does that mean? So things like industrials, staples, financials should carry some of the market. What I think we're not going to see yeah. is that big rally in tech again. What's going to fuel financials, Liz? Hopefully, a steepening yield curve. Hopefully. Hopefully. What we would like to see is the yield curve steepen and increase their interest margins. What do you say to people that have enjoyed 2019? They're up 11.8%. The primal urge to cash in and sit is ginormous, isn't it? Yeah, and you know what? It wouldn't be a bad call. It wouldn't be a bad call to take a little bit off the table and, and consolidate here because we do, like I said, expect a little bit of a pullback. Maybe that happens in March. Maybe it happens sometime a before summer. A pullback within a bull market. The key attribute here is how many people listening to this don't believe it's a bull market. True. That's true. And and we questioned that at the end of okay. last year where we went from October to right. December down 19.7%. Okay. I hear you're going off the TV right now. I am. You're not going to get cricket talk on TV. <laughs> you won't get That's that. That's too I mean, bad. <laughs> don't you, can you see me and John in Trinidad next January? I can. I yeah, can. Do you, you want to come, Liz? Yeah, maybe. We'll do, we'll do a cricket maybe. special. We'll do Brian Why Lara? are we doing cricket today? Because it sells internationally. To who? It, it's huge. To okay, who? good morning to Australia. Australia, Australia. This is based Australia. on his research. This is based on... He's got like two friends down research. in Sydney yeah, or the something. The security guard who wouldn't <laughs> no, let the, him in. The Veronicas are in Brisbane and they listen did you, every morning. Did you bribe your way into the building today? Did you promise <laughs> to bring up Brian Lara to get into the building? I forgot my badge uh, and, and uh, Mr. Jack of security... You, know, you, for, you forget your badge another cricket. few times. You're not allowed in. I know that's what happened last year, you the got, Wednesday before get, you Thanksgiving. Sent, you got sent home. Yeah, I purposely forget it, like, you know, December 23rd. Or Liz, you can whatever. go. Liz Young, BMY Mellon, Investment so Management Director Greatly of Market Strategy. Great to see morning. you, Liz. was sitting at home and I put out a 14 thread tweet looking at the arch debate of MMT, modern monetary theory, which is essentially right now framed by Stephanie Kelton of Stony Brook, often writing for Bloomberg Opinion, and Paul Krugman, uh, an economist of some acclaim, writing for the New York Times. And it's a raging debate. And I think within my thread, I sort of let on 
where I come down in the debate. But this is going to be an interesting conversation for Bloomberg surveillance going forward. We begin strong with Liz McCormick, who's got a zillion years of experience in the bond space, and she has written a fabulous uh, piece, Powell Trashed MMT, but Wall Street sees room for U.S. to try it. you got to be kidding me. Who on Wall Street wants to have the legislative branch set up fiscal policy to run interest rates? Well, the reality is, Tom, nobody. But where they say it's room to run, it's like very smart people who've been in the bond market longer than yeah. I saying the truth is we thought 10 years ago when all this, you know, special measures to get out of the crisis and all the central bank easing, we would have runaway inflation. And we don't. We have a 10-year bond yield below 3%. So what they're saying is, like Michael Shaw of Marketfield, like if you tell me as an analyst, as a taxpayer, I think MMT is horrible. But I have to say, you know, look at the markets, you've got some time to deal with this, you know, because mm. rates are low and that helps. And, you know, surprisingly, it's almost like everyone in the markets that I talked to had to say, you know, you, you got to admit that the market isn't backing up. We don't have the bond vigilantes of right. the past that we had. So that's what they're saying, which I, I, I kind of can't disagree. You A know? wide set of economists came out as Krugman was screaming eight years ago, saying the inflationistas were wrong. And that if we have a gradual terminal value coming down, more tepid economic growth, population growth, productivity growth, we would have a regime of lower rates. And everybody in the bond space is benefited by that, to say the least price up, yield down. Are the bond pros like Michael Show, Bill Gross, and others, are they saying do away with the Fed or are they saying the Fed's got time to work? Yeah, no, definitely not saying do away with the Fed. They, they would align with kind of what I would consider more conventional. We need the Fed. You know, the Fed, honestly, right. with Volcker broke inflation and that, you know, we've kept ever since. So, you know, that, that's an, that's a kind of a bear we don't want to see again, inflation. But what they're saying is, like, I thought Scholl's comments were interesting that he said, he said to me, I remember 10 years ago when all this started post-crisis, I said I was talking to clients in Switzerland and they said, is the world going to end? Are we going to have runaway inflation, all this easing? And he's kind of calmed people down and we haven't. So I think they're just saying you might have some room to go here. But I think like if you look at my story, Gary Pollack was saying this is eventually going to break. The question is when, Tom, like we've been saying that in Japan for a while and they, they haven't gotten inflation well, to be a problem. Maybe right? at, at all times systems break. The observation in your wonderful story, folks, if you're just joining us, Elizabeth Cormack with us, uh, with a bond view of this modern monetary theory debate, MMT. Gina Smilek scheduled to be with us a bit here more on the economics. I'm going to call it the debate of 2019 within economics, but maybe maybe it won't have legs. We'll see. But Liz, what Michael Show goes to, which I went to, was the assumption of MMT that the legislative branch can not surgically, but more tactically manage fiscal policy. Do the bond pros see evidence of that? Scholl basically says no. Yeah, no, they don't. And I think, like, if you listen to Powell, which I know you did last week, he said the same thing, kind of, he put it back to Congress. Yeah. Hey, that's not our job. You guys have to pick, you know? <clears throat> you know, what? You know, we can't support what you want, but the, yeah. I don't want to, you know, I'm not in the opinion, I'm just a reporter, but I will say, like, 
people like Scholl and others say, you know, whenever the government has tried to pick a sector to support or to manage, yes, it hasn't panned out very well, you know? Um, So that's not kind of history shows. That's not the best way to go. And folks, we'll do what we've done for years on Bloomberg on the economy and Bloomberg surveillance. We'll get different opinions on this. And Liz, I'll be blunt. I want to talk to James K. Galbraith, who's been a good friend of the program out of Texas. And he is in support of elements of MMT. But James K. Galbraith, a million years ago worked on the Joint Economic Committee where he lived the inability of legislators to actually manage fiscal uh, policy as well. And some of this is duration. Like mm-hmm. we're, we're more of a shorter duration culture versus the French with much longer duration solutions, aren't we? Right. Well, exactly. You know, um, it depends on do you like someone said, do you take your pain now or later or do you do you kind of let it ride and have it be ter- worse later? Right. I mean, I think it some people argue even with the fed it's a little bit different but maybe the fed should have everyone says they maybe capitulated as you know tom and made a pivot to kind of a more neutral policy maybe we need to take a little more pain and raise rates a little more so before we let you go give us an update on cbo In, in the zoo of the news the last 10 days cbo came out you know and they went they made the media rounds talking but you follow the bond market and the belief of the unbiased CBO mm-hmm. is a plug-in numbers. How are they doing right now? Well, first of all, they have the deficit reaching a trillion by 2022. Chronically a Yes, trillion. and as you know, like, let's put whatever policy aside, whatever brand, you know, Democrat, Republican, we have a problem of entitlement spending rising, the interest cost on our debt, no matter what policy. So that in the backdrop is ongoing, worsening our deficit. That's uh, been going under Obama, continues under President Trump. And then if you add more policies, you know, the tax cut has added to that. So, you know, it is, like you said, a chronic problem. It's it's kind of hard. I have yeah. young children and ones that are in their 20s. It's hard to tell them to balance their checkbook when uh, America is not doing such a good job, right? So... I think it's oh, a problem. Really? I haven't tried that. Does that work? <laughs> I don't know. I keep telling them to spend less. It's not working yet. But uh, they're spending yeah. my money mostly now. Oh, really? I have one working that's making money, so she's spending her own. You hit a sore point there. Yeah. <laughs> Liz McCormick, go away. Thank you so much. Uh, doing bonds and again in this debate of MMT, and we'll continue this discussion. It'll be a source for good conversation over the coming uh, months. With us now, Mark Chandler joins us. We're thrilled that Mr. Chandler uh, could be with us with Bannockburn uh, on foreign exchange. Mark, one of our themes today has been the dollar. And, of course, that comes off uh, President Trump going after Chairman Powell on strong dollar. Can a central bank manage the dollar? Can a central bank manage its own currency? Maybe smaller countries might be able to. A country that's a currency is not as internationally used as the U.S. But I think the real takeaway is even though President Trump talked down the dollar to his base. The market had a brief reaction towards it, and now the dollar is actually stronger against the euro and yen on the day. I look, Mark, at you know the, the dynamics of the dollar. You have to partition it, as you've been so good at, across different parts. What part of dollar dynamics interests you most? 
I'd say right now two things. One is the divergence that's going to become more apparent at the end of the week. Here's what's going to happen, Tom. On Thursday, the ECB meets, and it's likely to downgrade its growth and inflation forecast and hint, at least a hint, at a new loan facility for European banks. The following day, the U.S. will report the jobs data. And even though we shouldn't expect anything like the 300,000 we saw in January, of non-farm payroll growth, we should expect a small tick up in underlying earnings growth, average earnings growth, to uh, to match the cyclical high, about 3.4%. This is the divergence I'm speaking about that I think is going to continue to underpin the dollar. So, Mark, you mentioned that uh, the dollar pulled back just briefly on President Trump's comments, but then kind of resumed its relative strength. And I guess that the question is, you know, what can a dollar depreciate against? And we've got weakness in, in China. Uh, we don't know about Europe. So let's start with China first. Kind of what is your sense of what is going on over there in terms of, A, the economy, and B, just trade talks in general? Yes, I think the, uh, uh, how would I say, everybody thinks, what a good idea. Have the Chinese uh, agree to not depreciating their currency, keeping it stable ostensibly against the dollar. I think this is a trap. This is not good for the United States, especially from Trump's point of view. This will prevent the U.S. from depreciating the currency, depreciating the dollar against China. If we have them stay stable, how are we going to get a weaker currency from this, a competitive advantage over China? I think this is part of the broader problem uh, that you bring up is that, sure, I get the idea that the strong dollar may uh, dampen U.S. exports, but the best thing for U.S. exports is stronger growth. And what should happen is that the weaker, that the stronger dollar turns into the weaker euro, weaker Canadian dollar, weaker Australian dollar, and that helps stimulate their own economies. And so exactly. I, I'm just yeah. puzzled here. What is, where where <laughs> should the dollar not be strong against? Yeah, that's that's kind of where I was getting to. So let's going on the other side of the globe. I mean, it seems like the UK and Europe they continue to stumble towards some type of Brexit resolution. Um, kind of, how do you think that plays out, and what are you seeing in the currencies at the moment? Yeah, so, you know, sterling has had a great run. It's been the strongest currency uh, this year, and partly as people have decided that the downside risks of that would be a, a Brexit with no agreement, uh, that has been reduced in market perceptions, thinking that more likely that it gets delayed rather than a hard exit. And so we're still about a week away from being able to resolve this. And so uh, yeah. I think sterling could have a little bit more upside room, but what this really highlights, I think, is the underlying weakness in the Europe as a whole. Weak eurozone, we've talked about, possibly easing from the ECB. You've got not only Brexit with the UK, but you've also got problems in Eastern and Central Europe, still not happy with sort of Brussels policies. And so I think Europe remains like our weak sister. Mark Chandler, your wonderful book, Political Economy of Tomorrow, used an astronomy bent of the constellations out there that make the world go round. Are we using the foreign exchange model of five years ago or 30 years ago now, or is there a new regime that we're in? Yeah, that's a good question, because I think that, you know, there was an agreement. It seemed, you know, after the high point of G7 cooperation at the Plaza Hotel and the Louvre Agreement back in the, uh, back in the 80s, early 90s, uh, there was a general agreement, uh, like an arms control agreement. Let's not let major countries agree not to use the currencies as a arena of competition to seek a beggar thy neighbor to seek advantage. And uh, I'm afraid that there's been a partly because of the change that happened in 2016 election in the U.S. uh, Partly uh, the antagonism, the the rivalry with China. I think that we're on the verge of perhaps breaking that. And I, I did not buy into those currency wars that people said 
was the case when the U.S. was doing QE. But the idea of weaponizing, of having a U.S. president try to talk down its own currency, <clears> I think we'd be very upset if China or Japan or Germany or doing any it. other yeah, country yeah. did this. Yeah, exactly. I think that the new golden rule is, uh, I, I thought for a while, spending my career on Wall Street, that the golden rule was he with the gold makes the rules. But now it seems that the golden rule is don't do as we say, don't do as we do, do as we say. Mark Chandler, thank you so much. Bannockburn today, Political Economy of Tomorrow, really thought-provoking book on um, sort of a broader view, I would say, the celestial view of foreign exchange. Uh, Tom, I am really excited for this next guest because the timing is absolutely perfect. Uh, you know, 2019 is going to be, it's really set up to be a huge year for tech IPOs. And so we're really uh, excited to have our next guest. Haran Seagram uh, is a NYU uh, Stern professor of finance. Uh, professor uh, Seagram, can you, it's, thanks and welcome uh, to the show. But boy, the timing is just perfect. We had Lyft file its IPO uh, last week. Uber uh, is, I'm sorry, Lyft is about to start its roadshow. Uber's about to go on the road at some point next couple of months. We've got Airbnb, so a lot of tech IPOs. Let's start with Lyft. The valuation that's being bandied about in the marketplace at 20 to $25 billion, that is a monster valuation of revenue, isn't it? Yes, thanks for having me, uh, Tom and Paul. Um, it is a monster valuation, but if you think about the latest revenue numbers of $2.2 billion, at that, at, that at 10x gives you roughly between 20 and $25 billion. Um, you could ask whether 10x is a, a reasonable uh, multiple of the revenue, but if you think about other ride-hailing uh, ride services around the world, blah, blah, uh, Grab Taxi, every other ride-hailing services have been priced at 10x or more. So... I feel this is uh, this uh, company will grow into this valuation um, based on the fundamentals right now with the net operating losses at uh, 911 million. Uh, you couldn't argue this valuation could be between 20 and 25 billion, but I have a feeling this company would uh, grow into this valuation. So, Professor, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the P&L there because Tom and I definitely noticed uh, that $900 million loss last year on a little over, I guess, $2 billion of revenue. When, at what point does a company need to show profitability? We saw some, a pretty good path to profitability for Alphabet and Facebook, but these guys seem to be a long way away, and there seems to be a lot of roadblocks for this ride-hailing business to achieve profitability. Uh, that's correct. Uh, if you think about Facebook uh, going public, um, they were profitable at that time, but investors seem to give up a uh, pass for companies in spite of their uh, net operating losses or net losses. Um, people are seeking growth. They are willing to pay anything for growth. If you think about growth as a present value equation, at low interest rates, the present value of growth is very high. So that's why investors are giving a pass for a company like Uber or Lyft. Is Graham Don and Cottle dead? I mean, we notice the joy of craft where the goodwill and the intangible joy of the synergy I hate that word, by the way, Professor. But, but you know, the goodwill went down and became bad will very rapidly. Is Graham Dodd and Cottle the iconic textbook? Is that dead? It, it is not. It will make its resurgence um, sooner than later. But investors are right now, um, sorry to use the cliche that here are missing out, 
They just want to get into any growth company that is possible. That is what's happening here. So, Professor, over the last several years, we've actually seen some down rounds uh, in the private equity market. We've seen some down IPO valuations versus the last or latest uh, private equity round. Can you give us a sense of what the relationship is today between, and for these tech companies coming out of Silicon Valley, the relationship between the private equity market and the public equity market in terms of valuation? Um, private equity valuations, I'm not a huge fan because there could be some preferential share structures. So based a valuation off of the private markets into a public market is a very hard task. Having said that, um, currently um, Lyft is priced in the private markets at 15, 15 billion, but that was roughly based off of expected 1.5 billion uh, at 10x. Since they surprised with upside of 2.2 billion, that is why investors are applying at 10x. 10x is not really steep, but if you think about yeah. the EV to sales for the market at 2.5, it seems very high. But for a gold company, investors are willing to pay. Right. Up. Somewhere buried in the CFA curriculum is enough linear algebra, uh, and I should say regression analysis, to keep one going. And basically, it says beware of extrapolation. How do you respond to the extrapolation habit? A funding of tech deals where you then extrapolate out a terminal value for that equity offering. Where did that vogue start? Professor Seagram, is it your fault? <laughs> it's, not my, it's not my fault, Tom. Um, so you're talking about um, extracting the terminal value from this valuation. Is that correct? Am I understanding? Yeah, you know, here? somebody does a round of financing of $400 million and some right. guy at NYU decides the company's worth $7 billion. Discuss. <laughs> so I pretty much look at the fundamentals of a company, Tom. I look at the growth, risk, and uh, cash flows of a company. But here what we have to think about is this is a brand new disrupting service. So to price something on the fundamentals is going to be always difficult for us. So if we had priced Amazon on the fundamentals for the last 15 or 20 years, we wouldn't have gotten the value Amazon is currently trading at. So certain disruptive technologies, uh, we have to be a little bit liberal about the fundamental valuation here. That is what exactly happening in my humble opinion. So, Professor, I noticed uh, in the uh, um, prospectus here for Lyft, uh, another example of dual-class stock, that seems to be very prevalent uh, for a lot of these tech companies coming public. Um, does the market discount the valuation at all anymore for dual-class stock? Um, I don't think so. Um, it is the norm for the tech companies. Uh, 20 to 1 uh, vote is a steep vote, uh, but investors are very forgiving at this moment towards a growth company. So it used to be a problem for corporate governance practices, but I don't think that is the case right now. At least it's not impacting the valuation. Professor, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Haran Segrin with us with New York University Stern School of Business. They're a professor of finance. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.